Welcome to the Security Sanity Podcast. We're your hosts, David Swinger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take in the office and help protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. You know, sure, you don't make that much money developing malware, but the benefits are great. Top bunk, three squares a day, 20 minutes in the exercise yard, shiv-free Fridays, all courtesy of the taxpayer. Quite the bargain. Quite the bargain. All right. For our first article today, oh, we are back to the register. <laughs> our favorite. This is basically our favorite <laughs> news site. We should just rebrand this as a register podcast. Like we're just going to summarize register articles. Outside of the article is the wages of sin aren't that great if you're a developer choosing the dark side. The other week, I'm sure you remember because you guys listen to this every time. Religiously. Religiously. We asked, we were like, man, we'd really love to see an economic survey of how, you know, how the ransomware gangs work and how much everybody gets paid. And damn, if we didn't get one. Kaspersky has been studying gang job postings on 155 forums and they've compiled 227,000 postings. It's on. Unfortunately, it's it's mostly around job posting, so it's not quite as much detail as I wanted, but it is very interesting. They are, generally speaking, very similar to normal IT postings with a couple exceptions. Number one, all work is remote. So you know, once you're coming in and, I guess, seeing their faces, they don't want to see your face. And number two, no formal contracts. So they pointed out several times in there that the no formal contracts part means that if you're working for these companies, you will frequently get stiffed. I guess not companies, gangs. You'll frequently get stiffed and you will not get paid. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised that doesn't come out in these forums and stuff, you know, where, where, where ransomware gangs are being outed as, hey, these people don't pay after you develop code. Kind of surprised that's a, not a thing. Only there was a Yelp for gangs. Man, have we, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Yeah. So they, they took a look at the different types of postings. The vast majority of them are for developers at 61%. The number two was for quote unquote pen testers. The third most common was for designers. I don't know what a designer does in the context of this. Can't the developers also, I mean, I guess the designers are the ones asking for specific features in their malware. I have no idea. But they were the lowest paid ones too. They were the lowest paid. Well, it's not that hard to come up with the idea, I guess. But then why can't the, I don't know. I don't know. Other ones they asked, they were asking for reverse engineers, which is really interesting because that means they're either trying to break into other people's malware or trying to, you know, look for people to help them slip malware into a legitimate product, which I find really interesting. The well, next one was, actually, hmm? you know, what those people are primarily used for. Is when oh. a patch comes out, reverse engineering the patch to oh, identify they're what the weakness looking for is. vulnerabilities. Right. Uh, I see. I see. I yeah. I was too focused on the malware part. Yeah. Right. Now I feel embarrassed and I may take that out or I may leave it in to show off my ignorance to the world. I don't know. We'll see. The fifth one was analysts. I'm not sure. Like when I think analyst for a company, I think like a defensive analyst, like reviewing IDS logs and stuff. What would an analyst do in this concept? Well, I'm wondering if they're, if that's not a broad term, because maybe these are looking for victims. Oh, uh, or oh they're the ones doing targeting. Yeah. I could see that. Huh. Or they're, they're looking for vulnerable software that's got patched recently. So they have a 
a patch they can reverse engineer. Yeah, no, you're right. Nature. They they need they need targeters effectively. An analyst in the government sense is more on the targeting side versus like when you think of like CIA analysts, they're compiling intel and stuff like that as opposed to that's a, yeah, that may be, that may work. And then finally, administrators and testers were the least most asked least asked for. Yeah, you got to keep that ransomware infrastructure up and running. It's or make right. sure your botnet, you know, you're not losing bots on your botnet. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. I would have expected that, generally speaking, this type of work would pay more than normal work due to the increased risks. I was wrong. I was very wrong. They listed out median salaries, although I think they said that they, they only a small percentage of the, of the posts actually explicitly had a pay rate on them. But of the ones that did... The most on average was a reverse engineer, $48,000 per year. That blows my mind. A good reverse engineer in the U.S. will make way more than that. But we'll, we'll talk about that later. Pentesters, 30000 Developers, 24000 Analysts, 21000 Administrators and testers, 18000 And designers, 15600 That's crazy. The highest they offered, though, or that they saw was two hundred and forty k. For a developer, they and actually the, they actually found a, a higher one. They mentioned in the report, but then they said that that one was not serious. They thought that one was fraud, so they didn't include it in here. Wait, fraud? I'm shocked. <laughs> you can't trust gangs. Who can you trust? You want to talk about the mention the lowest? Rate? I just yeah the 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 lowest they saw was one point six thousand per year, but I can't imagine that was for full time. Well, I can't imagine someone would work a whole year <laughs> if that's all they were getting paid. But some offered additional percentages of profits also as part of their activities from like selling access. But what they don't mention, and I think this might be an oversight on the people doing the analysis, was that all this is tax-free money. So I think at least in the United States, you could add 25 to 40% on top of that in order to come to a more equivalent salary. So like the, the reverse engineer, that would actually be more like you know, 75 to 80,000. Once you factor in the fact that you're not paying taxes on that 48,000. Yeah, you're not paying Medicare, you're not paying Social Security, you're not paying income, lots of taxes. Oh. Right, exactly. Still, that's still too low though. But, hmm. so that is actually the next point that I have on here is why are these salaries so low? Even the highest one, even the 240,000 for the developer posting, that's like a early mid software engineer, early mid-career software engineer at a big tech company. So I had a few thoughts. I don't know. David can tell me which ones I'm full of junk on. Targeting poorer countries where this is a good living. But I still feel like if they're working remotely, they can make more. The second thought was targeting less experienced developers, maybe. Maybe early developers that are having trouble finding a job somewhere else. Some, At least it was mentioned somewhere on one of them that you could take as many days off as you wanted. So maybe some of these are not actually full-time jobs. They're meant as you take two or three or four of these and you only work a couple of days a week. Although some of them did mention that they were full-time too. Uh, or finally, the percentage of profits, if you're getting percentage of profits, is that meant to be higher in the salary? Although I think it sounded like that was not true of all the jobs. Not all the jobs were for a percentage of profits. I think one of the other things that might depress salaries is that they do list all these items for a annual salaries, but it could be that the turnover is incredibly high, that, that these developers are, they only work for a few months at a time at, at any one place because either, you know, they're not serious criminals and they, they don't want to stay doing that work or they're doing it part-time just to get over some kind of hump. So they, so they leave. So there's no incentive 
to have offer higher salaries because you're not going to get the tenure that's going to be equivalent or get that value. So basically, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, if you hire someone for two months and pay them a lot of money in those two months, you may not get the actual commensurate benefit from that because they were only working such a short period of time. That's possibly true. But so the the numbers I gave that were annual, they they actually gave in the report monthly numbers and I multiplied them by 12. So they're still getting those low rates, but you're right in the sense that, I mean, when you're writing a piece of malware, are they really going to hire you for 12 months for like six years to do it? Or is it going to be like a six month gig job? So that makes a lot of sense. And I could see, I could see, honestly, I think it's the, I, I think these are generally not full-time jobs. I don't think it's 40 hours a week. I don't think anybody's on your back. I think it's probably a combination of less than full-time job and it's gig work. Like we'll right. pay you 4,000 a month until you get this completed. And then maybe they hire one or two developers to use as a support for it. But then they like staff up and staff down when they're developing, you know, new new things, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. And unfortunately, this is just one aspect of the entire ecosystem that an, that an economist would want to look at in order to understand, you know, why these numbers flesh out the way they, they do. Yeah. I would love to see on the other side of it, like how much do they bring in and then how much are they paying off? Cause these people, these, these, some of these gangs are bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, well, you also expect that they may have other expenses that we're not privy to, like bribes and other payouts that they have to do ah. in order to keep the cops off of them. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe. But they also mentioned that the hiring process is very similar to regular IT jobs. They may do coding tests as part of that. They do interviews. There are probationary periods, paid vacation and sick days, raises, flexible hours. Yeah, you know, you know, hackers spend all night in goth clubs at the disco, so... It's like that scene in, was it this, the second Born movie where Keith Urban is, not Keith Urban, Carl Urban is sitting in the discotheque. It's all dark and there's music booming or whatever. And then he walks out the door and it's like the middle of the afternoon. Like, <laughs> but I thought this whole hours thing that was weird because I would expect them to be more like task-based work. Hey, I yeah. need you to write this thing that does this, or I need you to break into these, this company, or I need you to figure out, well what the whole purpose of this patch is rather than the whole 40 hour work week stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Like I, like I said before, I think that this is probably not full time, but yeah, yeah. Cause you'd think that actually you'd have a core crew and then they'd do something more like what's that site Fiverr or whatever, where they would just post a, a task. Hey, I need a guy to do this thing, you know, and I'll pay you this to do it instead. That would seem to be a better method than uh, treating these companies like a business. And maybe this is just the kind of short-sightedness of people in general is that they know what regular work looks like and what it sounds like. So <laughs> when they go to their crimeware, they're just kind of mimicking what business does rather than thinking differently. Yeah, they just assume it's all the same. That makes sense. So they did mention that resume posting surged at the beginning of the pandemic with many mentioning lockdowns or furloughs. They said the single highest month for people trying trying to find jobs was March 2020, which does make me wonder how many people out there that are doing legal work, how many of them would move over and do illegal work if the circumstances were different? I don't know. I think it's it's no different from regular crime. You know, given the given other options, people would not do crime. 
you know, yeah. they do crime when they feel that they have to. But it's interesting, this whole, the whole pandemic thing, this is yet another downside that people don't talk about, that bullshit of those lockdowns. You know, turning, actually turning people to crime because of the lockdowns. No one has talked about that possible side of the, of, of the whole lockdown fiasco. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, why does this matter? Well, it doesn't directly affect companies. I, we just saw it and we thought it was super interesting. And we had mentioned that we wanted something like it the other day. So when, when the world, when fate delivers, you, you talk about it. You don't look to give horse in the mouth. Yeah, that's a better metaphor. All right. And our next article is, NSA asked Congress to let it get on with that warrantless data harvesting again. And of course, because this is the Register podcast, this comes to us from the Register. Oh my God. How do we, we have to do something else next time. We haven't had a Daniel Meisler article on here in forever. Or Anton Chivakin. Okay. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. The NSA Director General Paul told the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board yesterday, that's part of the government, that the loss of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, would mean American spies would lose critical insight into the most significant threats to our nation today. And this is scheduled to lapse on the 31st of December of this year. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm all, I'm all broke up about it. Don't worry. They're going to reapprove it. They always do. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've <laughs> reapproved it every, every time for the last decade and a half. So I don't expect it not to be renewed again. But Section 702... According to the NSA, Section 702 is a key provision of the FISA Amendments Act of 2008 that permits the government to conduct targeted surveillance of foreign persons located outside the United States. It is not allowed to target non-person, non-U.S., or I'm sorry, it's allowed to target non-U.S. persons located abroad who are expected to possess, receive, or communicate foreign intelligence information. It cannot target U.S. persons, regardless of location, any person located in the U.S., or a foreign person located abroad for the purposes of targeting a U.S. person. Now, in the United States, a U.S. person, a U.S. person, that's a very specific definition. When people hear that, they think U.S. citizens, but that's not the case. A U.S. person means any United States citizen or alien admitted for permanent residence in the United States or any organization corporation, partnership, or other other organization organized under the laws of the United States. That seems like a not possible thing for them to target or not target, right? Because if they're doing blanket wiretapping, they can't not target U.S. persons. Well, that's that's how they get around it is, is the, their definitions. Huh. Target versus not targeting. They're they just call collecting it, it. They aren't the targets, but they're just right. picking it up as part of the dragnet. Right. They call it incidental uh, collection. Of course. Now, they also mention, and the link to this actually infographic from the NSA will be in the show notes, that the government uses the information collected under Section 702 to protect the United States and its allies. What they What they don't mention is that the Israelis or the British or whomever have no restriction on collecting on U.S. persons or sharing that with the U.S. government. And then they collect stuff for British and Israeli citizens and pass that on to them, right? If there's any compunction in those countries about doing their own domestic yeah. surveillance, I'm sure they wouldn't have a problem with that either. But sure, there's plenty of instances where the United States gets intelligence on U.S. citizens from the British and the Israelis. And as a matter of fact, as part of this whole FISA 702 thing is 
the Israelis were getting everything that we were doing also. So they were getting access to all this data as well. So you had the Israelis getting access to stuff on U.S. citizens as well as part of this whole fiasco. Now, according to the Electronic Freedom, Freedom Foundation, what they say is Section 702 is supposed to do exactly what its name promises, collection of foreign intelligence from non-Americans located out in the United States. As the law is written, the intelligence community cannot use that to target Americans who are protected by the Fourth Amendment against unreasonable search and seizures. But the law gives the intelligence community space to target foreign intelligence in ways that are inherently and intentional to sweep American communicate sweep up American communications. Now to quote the EFF further, the government can and does collect communications of Americans who communicate with targeted individuals located abroad. It also collects other Americans' communications that happen to be caught as part of the NSA's targeting of foreigners. That means that the government casts a spying net that is that routinely catches the communications of law-abiding Americans who are protected by the Fourth Amendment privacy protections. Now, one thing that the article didn't mention, but it was revealed two years ago, is that the FBI, any FBI agent is allowed to search the database and to de-anonymize the data. Really? Uh, yeah, and, and I'm willing to bet that this came out about the FBI, but almost certainly... Every other gun carrying agency in the federal government has access to the same database. Huh. So the cops have record access to recordings of any conversations that Americans who have communicated with anyone outside the United States. And this is not just phones. This is email, text, anything, any kind of communication method. Hmm. And now we were talking about definitions a minute ago and how they use weasel words around their definitions to to <laughs> allow them to do these things. Because what they don't go into is what they what the intelligence community means by collection. So it used to be that intelligence was not considered collected until it was retained for more than three days after it was determined to involve a U.S. person. So they could say, <laughs> so they could say that they don't collect data on U.S. persons if if either they don't store it for more than three days or they don't determine that it's a U.S. person. That's ridiculous. So they could skirt around this whole U.S. person and collection thing by either not checking or checking poorly or using methods that are certain to yield inconclusive results, which will err on the side of the negative of it being a U.S. person. That sounds an awful lot like it depends on your definition of what is, is. Exactly. And you got to figure most of the government is run by lawyers. So they can, you know, confound regular people with talk that doesn't mean any, make any sense. Yeah. It's kind of like the U.S.'s U.S. government has redefined what imminent means. You know, to to the average person, imminent means you know it's about to happen any second. To U.S. government, it's probably within the decade is imminent. Uh, but of course, why this is even important is the fact that this is even still going on. You know, S Snowden told us about this a decade ago now, and this shit has not changed. So the only thing, the best thing you can do about it is use end-to-end -end encryption for everything. It's not perfect because if they compromise your endpoint, of course, that, you know, that's out the, out, out the window. I don't think we need to worry about quantum crypto cracking encryption anytime <laughs> soon. So, but the thing is, you know, if you do end-to-end -end, end -end encryption on everything, that raises the bar. Because once everybody does encryption for everything, they have to really focus on what they want to decrypt and what they want to store and what they want, who, what endpoints they want to compromise, things of that nature. So I think the more 
everybody uses encryption for everything, not just going to their banking website or whatever, but for their email, for their text, everything, the better off we're going to be. That makes sense. For our third article today, another interesting one that doesn't have quite as much to do with companies. Actually, this whole this whole section, did you organize the articles this way because none of them really had much to do with the company? Or did it just work out that way? I just went in order of our list. All right, fair enough. Which is random. Title three. This one is not from the register from CSO Online. A surge of swatting attacks targets corporate executives and board members. The summary, I'm just going to use the article summary because I couldn't make a better one. Quote, swatters use data brokers and stolen information on the dark web to target C-suite and board members. End quote. As you may or may not know, swatting is calling the police and pretending to be at the location of someone you're trying to get killed and telling the police something that will get them out there with a full SWAT team. Frequently, that is that you have hostages and you're going to kill them or that you've already killed people. I started off as a prank amongst the gaming community back in the 2000s, but at least one person has been killed by the police during a swatting. So it's, and frankly, any interaction with the police carries a real risk of getting shot. So it is kind of dangerous. In article, they call it an accident. It, it, it's not an, you know, when the cops accident. kill you, it's not an accident. No. They killed you on purpose. <laughs> well, yeah, you they know, may have been mistaken the in their that, reasoning. The, the fact that they were there yeah. might not be, you know, legit or whatever, but they didn't kill you by accident. Yeah. Yep. So according to, quote, digital executive protection company, Black Cloak. Oh, that's quote, a sexy name. <laughs> I know, right? Unknown bad actors are swatting the C-suite and board members, specifically targeting Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. So my first thought here is, is this real or is this just sales? Urban legend kind of thing? Yeah, I, I've not seen anything in the news. And admittedly, I don't watch all that much news, so it's not really a surprise. But I didn't see anything on here that indicated that this was a sales article. There's nothing that was, you know, paid for by or courtesy of. But again, like, I don't, eh, I don't know. Well, here's uh, the thing is that they're talking about C-suite people being targeted. So you're talking about rich people. You're going to tell me that the news is not going to be all about these poor rich people who are in, in, in danger. That, you know, <laughs> that would not be hyped up. That, yeah. You know, these C-suite people would make it well known that they're at risk and, you know, the, the government needs to give them more money or something. Well, maybe they don't want to risk. Maybe they don't want to broadcast it because they don't want to give poor people ideas. They don't want them to keep picking on the rich people. I don't know. Anyways, so according to them, this has been, quote, accelerating over the past five or six weeks. But that being said, if it's never happened before and it happens twice, that is an infinite percentage increase. So <laughs> <laughs> they don't give any numbers. Uh, this does make me curious about the motivations. They don't mention any kind of ransomware or threats or anything like this. And this made me think back about somebody named Matt Heimbach, who is ostensibly a white supremacist, although lately he's gone heavily into class warfare as opposed to race warfare. He was the subject, part, he was one of the subjects of a podcast from Reveal a couple of weeks ago called Inside the Global Fight for White Power. It just was weird because his big thing, they have they talk about an interview with him. Yeah, and I think there's actually a replay because I feel like I've heard this a couple of years ago too. Maybe they just re-released the episode. But he was talking about how the normal people should be going after the C-suite and board members. He was making comments about violence, like like throwing Molotov cocktails and how C-suite CEOs and board members all have addresses and have families. And he was doing that weird talking around thing where you don't tell somebody to go do it, but you're like, what if somebody threw a Molotov cocktail at these people? Which yeah. 
yeah, it was, it was very interesting to listen to, but it makes me wonder why, like, again, there's no threats, there's no ransom. There's no, Hey, if you don't pay us off, we're going to swat you. Like they're just swatting them. Right. What is the motive? What, you know, what's the payout? What's the outcome? What are they benefiting from this being done? Seems yeah. Weird. I don't know. Yeah. That's what, that's what made me think of the class warfare thing. Like, cause this is a really easy way to harass rich people by proxy with almost no consequences to yourself. So anyway, so how the attack occurs, the bad actors go to the website of the company they're targeting. The company's website almost always lists the top executives and board members. They then go to a data broker website, data broker website, and find all the information they can, which frequently includes addresses. If it does not, they can check breach data and get addresses. If the people, you know, ordered anything from one of these sites has been breached. They call the police using a voice changer. And I assume a fake phone number. It doesn't say that they do, but you know, like I said, use a burner phone. Yeah, burner phone or uh, I, I know Google Google phone numbers can be tracked because you have to sign up with them with an email address, yeah. but I bet there's other providers of temporary phone numbers. Yeah. See, that just adds to the to to the fact that this doesn't make any sense because this shit costs money. So they're gonna spend this money to execute on this without a payout other yeah. than possibly getting someone killed and then you know, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And then once you've called the police, you tell them there's a hostage or murder situation. And then the police send the SWAT team out there. And then hopefully there's some sort of confrontation where somebody gets shot. So Did you say the, hopefully? Well, from the perspective of the <laughs> from the perspective of the swatter, not <laughs> with any luck, you actually get someone killed. Well, I mean, when you think about it, like obviously the police know more about this now, but they have to treat this as a high risk situation. But then the person who owns the house, if they have a firearm in the house, like they're going to hear like banging on the door. And we know that the police don't, are not always clear about who they are. And like, like, I like that, that, that paramedic that was killed a couple years ago, like the police didn't announce that it was them. They just busted in the door and then he returned fire. There's just, there's just a very risky situation. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, all your pets are going to die. <laughs> if you have any dogs. If you have a dog, they will be, they will and watch they out will for your goldfish sure. too. Yeah. Well, that's right, for so. the after, the after party where they're you know, oh, eating, eating the goldfish for competition. So how to reduce the swatting risk? I mean, frankly, this, a lot of this goes for everyone. Like this is not necessarily about your, your, your CEO or your board member, but Number one, try to get your data, personal information removed from data broker sites. This is according to the, the company that has been quoted in this article. And I bet you can pay that company to do it. I'm sure they offer that service for a substantial chunk of change. I'm unsure of how useful this is. I could have sworn I saw an article a few years ago that said that there were just a ton of these data broker sites and they're like playing whack-a-mole. You pay or get somebody to remove it from one site and there's like 10 others that have it. And mm -hmm. in the time it takes you to remove it from those sites, there's a bunch of other ones. Right. Because there's not some universal, you know, do not data broker my data requirement, like a do not call list or whatever. Yeah. Share less personal information individually. That's a great idea for everyone. Everyone should immediately delete their social media. It's cancer. <laughs> and it's metastasized already. Alter the information on your company about us page and SEC reports. They mentioned that a lot of about us pages have lots of info, like every executive put lots of information about, you know, I live in such and such town with my wife and my kids and just gives out of just a bunch of information for targeting. And they even apparently include that in some of their SEC reports. Hmm. So, 
Seems silly to me. And then here's the real rich person tip. Register your homes in the name of an LLC or trust instead of your own. Of course, that doesn't help for the house you're living in right now, but I guess you could sell it to a trust. That probably would have some tax implications though. Right. So right after that, all the rich people that listen to this podcast are going to go out and buy another house and register it under, under a- Oh yeah. I've, I've already got that in process. My lawyer is working on it right now. My team of lawyers is working on it right now. Actually, they could probably just sell- their current house to the LLC. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. That's what I was saying. Yeah. It's just, yeah, start up an LLC, sell it to them, but then you're selling it to yourself. And I don't know if that's got like tax issues or the government's like, because you're not really selling it. You're just trying to generate a legal transaction. Right. Well, you could still, I guess it depends on how deep they want to dig. Because if you sell it to an LLC where you're an officer named an LLC, that may or may not throw them off the trail. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you do like, a, what is it? Is it North Dakota and Delaware allow you to have LLCs where you don't have to list out the directors? I am not certain. Probably Delaware. So why does this matter? Well, it's not strictly cybersecurity, but it is kind of a related threat vector you can at least partially control. Uh, and what should you do about it? Personally, share less information. Delete anything off anything personally identifiable off social media or better yet, delete social media. My personal Instagram account is now renamed to a random string of letters and everything is deleted off there. It's actually surprisingly hard to delete some of these social media accounts. No. It's weird. It's like they really don't want you to do it. Hmm. Imagine um, that. Speaking of, I actually tried to delete my Facebook the other day. I should go in and check that. Is it still What do you there? mean you tried? So you failed? Well, so there's an option. I found an option in there that says delete all of my posts. Nope. My posts are still here. It did not take. That's interesting. Yeah, I was I was trying to delete the whole thing the other day. Well, I wanted to keep the friends list so that I can message people that I keep in touch with there, but I wanted to delete all the posts so nobody could go in and, you know, screen cap all my posts. For a while, I was deleting them one by one, but that was a giant pain. But then I looked it up and there was supposedly a method of deleting all of your posts at once. It did not work though. There was a button that there was a button to do it. You had to dig four or five levels down to find it, but it did not work. Yeah. So the button was like the close button on the elevator. <laughs> yeah. Does nothing. All right, so corporate, review the information you share on your site, your SEC reports, remove anything that's personally identifiable or that you're not required to report. It's basic AppSec, really. <laughs> it really uh, is. About this whole thing. But that's all the articles we have for today. Thanks for listening to the Security Serengeti podcast. And follow us on Twitter at SerengetiSec and subscribe and listen on your favorite podcast app.